Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Underworld Rise of the Lycans is over. It's time to return to Underworldia. 
You are the most fearless warrior I have ever seen. But you will learn to be loyal without the loyalty between us. We are no better than the beasts at our door. They are the immortal damned. Vampire and Lycan. One born into privilege. Sonia, you risk too much for a father to ignore. I'm quite capable of looking after myself. The other bred for slavery. Lucian, you are a credit to your race. But all that is about to change. Sonia, if I were to leave, would you come with me? My father would hunt you down. You have stung me with your betrayal. I've lived by their rules my entire life. I've protected them. Envied them. And for what? To be treated like an animal. We are not animals! Is this what you want? We can be slaves, or we can be... Lightons! We now have a little bit better sense of, of where in the in the world of Underworldia, the vampires live. If people wanted to get a little bit better sense of where you lived, where would you send them? People can find all of their mapping needs <laughs> for tracking all of their favorite The Next Real Podcast hosts down over at uh, our Discord chat group. If they... If they go to our website, thenextreel.com, they can find links to get uh, get into our Discord where they can join in the conversation with all of our other listeners about all the different movies we're talking about and everything else going on in the world of uh, entertainment. And, of course, they can also learn about their memberships and our memberships get them even more channels in Discord to chat with even more people. So it's a great place to check out. And uh, okay, there may not be any great mapping tools actually over there, but you can certainly have some good conversations <laughs> with all of the Next World team. The Next World. <laughs> the Next Real. The underworld. Next, the Next World team. The Underworld Next also, Real Andy, team. And, and uh, I live Andy under, does live underworld. Yeah, Pete. <laughs> Underworldia. <laughs> All right, Andy, we've hit number three, and now we're in full. This is a full-on flashback. The whole movie is a flashback. It is. You could call it a prequel, but because of this series' love of flashbacks, I'm just the whole thing. Well, especially because it starts with Celine talking about their history, and it ends with her up on the oh church God. cathedral that we see her at the start of the first film. So we're we're getting flashbacks. It's it's designed in a strangely flashback structure, even to the point where it's not designed like the previous two films with all the on-screen text at the start, kind of kind of setting the stage. This is Celine putting us into flashback mode. Yeah, yeah. And so the movie starts, we're into flashback mode, and then we are back in time. And we're so far back in time that we don't even really spend any time with Celine at all. We have a new principal character, that is Sonia, the daughter of uh, Bill Nye, uh, Victor. Bill Nye's Victor. Okay, yeah. okay, before we move past this point, I just want to get from you your sense 
of Bill Nye and his accent. Because last time, as I recall, even though he wasn't in it very much, you had a real problem with the place that Bill Nye took the accent for his character, which I didn't have really an issue with. I just thought it was just Bill Nye kind of being um, very Shakespearean with his deliveries. Uh, how did how did he fare here? Was it more of the same? Well, now, wait a minute. You asked that question. I feel like that's a leading question. Are you intimating here that you may have had a problem with Bill Nye's accent? I'm not. I didn't have any issues with okay. Bill Nye. I just <laughs> I just was like, there's so much Bill Nye in this that I was like, I wonder if if Pete had a real hard time even getting through any of this because of Bill Nye. <laughs> There's so many things. Uh, The first, weirdly, I didn't. I didn't have a problem with Bill Nye's accent in this movie, which brings up a central problem that I have with with how the movie handles time elapsing. There is like this movie. (laughs) They speak there. It's hundreds of years prior to the last movie, and they speak exactly the same way (laughs) they do in modern. I know it's cartoon and a soap opera. And so I'm not supposed to think about these things. But the fact that Bill Nye speaks with more of an arcane accent in the movie previous that takes place hundreds of years later than he does in this movie, I find kind of weird. I just I I didn't have a problem with his um, with his accent. And I feel like I should have. If any movie deserves Bill Nye being the arcane Transylvanian style uh, uh, British transmogrification of words it should be this movie and i didn't get that i just have to say when bill nye says things like that he lives shows the breadth of my magnanimity magnanimity (laughs) i I mean really like what more do i need that that's exactly what i want out of this movie is to have bill (laughs) nye just have things like that roll off his tongue because he did he does it so well (laughs) i know he does. No, there's no doubt. <laughs> okay. I, I he's he's good. You you bring up an interesting point though about this film because this is a prequel. But I am I'm really unclear. <laughs> and I'm not sure the filmmakers are clear when it comes to the timeline here because my understanding from piecing these three films together there's this point where the three heads of the vampires catch William and lock him in this tomb and have this special lock created by Celine's father. Celine plays in the castle, draws on the walls, all at the time, my thinking was, when William is getting locked up. Right? Yeah. that's We see that in the last film. Right, right. And that's William, who's the head of the Lycans. So, yeah. In this film, is William, is he out there? Is he running around? Or I don't think he's locked up, but we also see that necklace, the the same lock necklace that I thought was one of the pieces of this tomb that Celine's father had made. Okay. Am I am I, I re- am I thinking too I much regret. about this particular no, movie? No, I regret because this is the thing that I could have thought uh, way too hard about, and I regret that I missed it because it seems super obvious now, and I'm concerned. Uh, I wasn't before, and you've now invested me with the same kind of concern. I thought he was locked up. I thought that he was gone. Okay. And that they were, but we never see any of that. Well, maybe, maybe it's all, maybe the stories are happening concurrently. I mean, that's possible. William has just been locked up and maybe 
you know, Celine's family hasn't been killed yet. And may, I, I just, I don't, I don't know how they fit together because my impression was that Victor kills all of Celine's family because he doesn't want anyone knowing about kind of the the truth or the whereabouts of where William is and all that. It's like, yeah, that's part of his scheme is to kind of hide all of that. Right, right. And then he takes Celine at the time because she reminds him so much of his daughter, Sonia, who that's he right. had already killed. That's that's right. So that's why we don't. Yeah, that's that that happens in between this movie and the next. Right. So but then William is running around then. Right. Right. He is. So he's one of the many lichens running around out front, even though he's never brought up or pointed out as, hey, that one's William over there. Okay, now. (laughs) When did he get in the tomb? Well, we know it's 1202. (laughs) No, I mean, I know that. But what year, because this movie has no idea what year it's in, just as it's made up all of its geography, Maybe that's the problem. It's underworldly in time. <laughs> you know, that's the only thing that would make sense. I'm very sense. confused, and, I, and now I'm, I'm very frustrated. <laughs> the movie doesn't know when, when it exists. I know that they were just doing this as a backstory, but like when you're when you're trying to piece these other elements together, then it just... I don't know. I I find it getting very cloudy. (laughs) I don't fully cloudy is the word. I don't fully get it. I just don't fully get it. I my Um, okay. Now I don't know. I don't really know. Maybe it's just a necklace. Here's the thing. It's it's entirely possible this is in the past. William is still running around, and he just happens to not be in this particular group. Maybe he's on the other side of Underworldia at this particular point in time. And it's just Victor and. Um, the other two, um, I'm blanking on their names. Um, what are the Marius other? and, uh, Marcus, Amelia. Marcus and, Marcus and Amelia, Amelia are sleeping and he's just dealing with all this stuff with the lichens. And maybe later he's going to kind of hit that point where he's like, you know what? I need to wake both of them up. We need to deal with this William issue. And that's in 1202. And that's in 1202. They both they both are woken and the three of them go on a battle to stop William and lock him up because right. maybe the war, because it seems like at that point the war is raging. Yes, the war is because where we are right now is the beginning of the war, and we don't know what year it's in, it's in, but it's before 1202. Okay, so then all of that means that the necklace that we see is just a necklace at this point. It's not the special pop-out necklace that's actually a key. That's now kind of what I'm yeah. taking so from all the, of this. So that necklace was the precursor necklace that was then adapted to hold the key later. I'll, I can buy that now. Okay. All right. You know, I, I wanted to say one thing. It's a it's an effects slash weaponry comment that we haven't made any mention of yet. But uh, I feel like it's it's an important thing just to note. This movie loves those little spinning star things <laughs> that are constantly being thrown. And in this movie, at the very beginning, they're actually launched from the hilt of a sword. Uh, and they fly woo, 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 spinning at the camera and then into 
uh, lichen in the opening, what I'm calling the George Lucas trench run through the, the canyon. We also have a trench run through the trees later. Uh, there, there, and, and so little spinny things. You made me think of it because of the key. It looks like the yeah. the little spinny things. This this movie loves round shapes that snap and have blades in them. Right, like and little everywhere, uh, like little uh, steampunk ninja yes. throwing stars or something. Steampunk ninja stars. That's exactly what yeah. it is. It reminded me a little bit. I can't uh, stop thinking about Phantasm and the orb in Phantasm. Oh, yeah, um, it it's just uh, the movie loves them that much. And they're everywhere. And we didn't even mention them the last two movies. And I'm not going to lie to you. They're also in the next two movies. So <laughs> we, we <laughs> that hero shot is everywhere. Nice. Uh, so, yeah. So there you go. All right. Well, we should point out that this is actually a kind of, I, I guess I'll say, a turn in the franchise. Because for the first time, we actually are kind of getting a story that's kinder to the Lycans. I'd almost say it's from the Lycan point of view, although I don't quite think it is. Maybe that's part of his problem. Is it? Is it Michael's? I feel like this is, uh, or not Michael, Lucian's story. Um, this is largely Lucian's story. We certainly see a lot from from Sonia. Um, but I think perhaps this is really the story about the Lycans and puts us into their shoes a little more. It, yeah, I think it is, because what they've done is they've taken the Romeo and Juliet story that we've we've grown up with. Right? Yes. Uh, in, in the underworld uh, Romeo and Juliet story. And now they're making it also a gladiator story. Right. And that is where we have this one hero slave. And he is uh, he's ingratiated himself in some way for some purpose to his enslavers. And now he's going to rise up and and demonstrate his his, you know, acumen as a leader. And I, I think largely the movie does a pretty good job on the back of of, you know, Lucian uh, as a. Uh, as a character, which I think is very strong. And I think Michael Sheen, I, I love the movie gives so much to Michael Sheen. I, I think this he's really he's really very good uh, at at what he does. Uh, I'm curious where you think it falls apart, though. Like you, you say the movie, you, you're not sure the movie understands its perspective well enough. I think the idea of a Romeo Juliet type of story between a lichen and a vampire I mean, it can work. And we know the story of Romeo and Juliet has worked countless times. It's it's an interesting story, and it can very easily be, in fact, in, especially in a soap opera, and so often anyway, the cause of a war, right? I just think that that's kind of a story that's been told through time. There's a love story, and that causes this great um, uh, anger from would, one side would you say the it's other. A, would you say it's a tale as old as time? <laughs> Would you say that? Or, or maybe a song as old as rhyme. <laughs> I, I don't know. What are the other? The, 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 but I, I think for me, this film really falls apart. I, I don't mind the Romeo and Juliet nature of it. I don't mind it kind of being the cause of the war. I think that there's uh, an interesting look at the structure that uh, Len Wiseman, uh, Kevin Grevio, uh, Danny McBride, they had created as kind of the foundation for this world of how these lichens and and vampires interacted and had this kind of conflict. I think that that's actually pretty interesting, and I like the way they created it. For me, I feel like so many things really fall apart when I I start feeling like 
they they don't seem like they really know all of the own their own history and their own story and they also feel like they it, it, i i i feel like they're a little shaky on the the rules that they're setting up for vampires and lichens and i feel like there are times where i'm like what's like do they need the moon like i don't really understand what's going on with the werewolves they keep showing the moon but is that something that lucian needs to transform does he just transform when he feels like it like i i don't feel like i'm understanding some of this stuff and i feel like they really start kind of throwing things at us that i'm like i just feel like they're throwing at us just to throw at us and i end up having issues because i just feel like they're not creating as solid a foundation as they really need to with vampires with werewolves uh, with everything going on in underworldia where it all makes sense and like and maybe that maybe i am just digging too deep in a franchise like this but if you're creating a a, a franchise that's going to last at least 5 films i feel like at least put some time into creating kind of that tolkien-esque level of rules so that all of this ends up making sense from film to film to film i i think you, i think tolkien-esque is striving even too high. You don't have to go <laughs> very far to actually, you know, create a rule set that uh, that makes sense in this movie. And I think you're right. I think the the time time and location issues are um, are symptoms of this. Right? We've talked about it in every conversation about this movie that it is a it, it's a movie that is that that handles these things sloppily. Right. Like it it is a movie whose intention seems to always start with, you know, what would be cool and then just do it without any forethought. I mean, I I wanted like I'm uh, now I'm I'm sitting here researching like, should I should I send Danny McBride a copy of Aeon Timeline? Like you just it doesn't take much (laughs) to actually mark out where things happen in, in space and time. So I agree with you. And I think the rules are sloppy. At best, and this pushes on the lore stuff, right? That we are yeah. that we've been talking about. What do you, what are you willing to break for in service of your story? Um, what we already know about the history of vampires and werewolves, and if you're gonna do that, you've got to set it up well uh, so that it becomes part of canon for us. And this movie and this whole series demonstrates how hard it is to do that or how little care the filmmakers had in doing that in the first place I, the thing that bugs me more than anything like I, I is is this aging bit right we've known for years right since the, i mean this is a part of vampire lore history it's it is settled vampire science <laughs> <laughs> That when a vampire bites you and turns you into a vampire, you stop aging. Right. Right? How how are there baby vampires? (laughs) Are they shouldn't they be just infants with big teeth? Is that that's all they should be? And then they stop. They stop. (laughs) <laughs> That's all they get. 
And yet we have children vampires that age into older things. And that was never set up. I'm fine giving myself over to it if they demonstrate in some small part that they care about uh, about the fact that they've introduced a new conceit that we have to buy if we're going to buy the world of Underworldia. Uh, I don't know how we've ever had Celine as a child. I don't know how uh, I, I don't know how we have a baby werewolf that seems. I guess I buy that a little bit more, right? I mean, I, I yeah, I don't have an issue with the werewolves. It's even though they also are immortal and they seem to live, I mean, obviously are living forever because Lucian's still alive right. at the start of the first film. So that is a big and question. And he looks exactly the same right, in this right. film as an adult that he does. So how much time passed? From the point that he was a baby to the point that he was Michael Sheen, right? Like, it looked like about maybe 28 years, 30 years. But then for the next 600 years, 800 years, he didn't change a drip. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a a really interesting point about the whole idea of immortals um same thing i mean think about the last film with alexander their father who is an immortal for some reason (laughs) still not exactly sure what happened with him but he's an old man and yes he didn't i i'm imagining that he didn't have his two sons when he was as old as as he was in that film i would imagine he was a younger man so he has aged to the point where he's an older man but again, it's like, are they aging? It's just incredibly slow. But you're right. Why then, in that case, does Michael Sheen look the same at the start of Underworld as he does here? Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer to that. And yeah. it's, I, I find I'm lingering on those things in this universe more as each film progresses. And that's and, the danger. Uh, that's the yeah. danger. I mean, that's my problem it, with him in the moon. It's like, so... Because because yeah. he can transform all those other wolves out in the forest who are bit directly by William cannot. They are perma werewolves. In other words, they're just like yeah. wolf men, basically. Right. They, right. Right. They're crazy. Whereas he was born the first one who was actually uh, kind of could transform back and forth, which is why Victor kept him alive. Well, Victor felt bad for him supposedly, and now he's using him as the tool to now create a whole uh, slave. Um, kind of army of uh, werewolves that they can kind of manage. So we know that there's that whole side of the werewolves and there's William's whole side of the werewolves, but somehow he brings it all together. But still, like, why do they keep showing full moons throughout this film? Because it's yeah. not like he's like, oh my God, I'm going to transform. And then he transforms. That That's just not happening. And we know he can kind of transform on his own, but still they keep emphasizing that full moon. And I just really was like, why is that an emphasis if it no longer ties into lichen lore in the context of the film? At all. Right. And now now we're in a place where lichens can and do transform anytime they want when they're just mad. They can control it. They can do all kinds of. And now I'm confusing all the movies. Did we? Is this the one with the hand? Did you see the hand? In this one? No, that was another one. Don't ignore me. I didn't say that. Uh, but but one of the things that they that we'll, we see and we will see is, you know, uh, werewolves who can transform just part of themselves in order to accomplish a task and then transform it back. And, and that's, gah, like, that's just, I, it's cool. 
It's cool. And so all of this baggage is being dragged along behind. It's piling up behind the movie, the series as we go along. And it has to be balanced against how much cool they really deliver on screen through yeah. effects and character. And so uh, is, is there anything for you that is redemptive to that point? Well, we have, uh, you know, the, I don't mind the soap opera's love story, right? We have Lucian and Sonia. They have this connection, even though, you know, it's <laughs> honestly, it kind of reminded me of uh, the Princess Bride when she comes in after, you know, her battle with the lichens out in front of their castle. And he's like, you know, he's like the farm boy, this poor guy who's just like doing all these tasks and stuff. And she just looks at him. And I just wanted her to say, oh, farm boy, fetch me that, <laughs> that pitcher of water. As you, you know, wish. As you wish, right. <laughs> it just totally seemed like they should just do that. But it's like, okay, that's fine. The whole thing with dad. I, I enjoyed seeing um, the uh, Talus. I, I enjoyed seeing Talus in yeah. this film as kind of the, almost like the advisor, the worm tongue sort of advisor. Con- sort of guy conciliary. To the right. But, yeah. uh, you know, I was hoping that that would turn into something a little more. It never seemed to quite gel as much as I wanted to, right. uh, as he seems to be the one who knows that they have this secret story happening and wants to help them and such. So I thought, okay, there's something interesting going on with Talus. I like the whole idea of this lichen who is feeling abused and rises up. You know, I think that that's a fair story to tell. And it certainly makes sense. And I can certainly see why it would cause a war, maybe more so than the love story. Just the fact that, you know, he and all the other lichens are being kept as slaves and abused. Here's their revolt so that they can uh, prove themselves as their own species and stuff. I think that that's a fair story to tell. Weirdly, I kind of like that there are humans tied up in this whole thing, too, who seem to have partnered with the vampires to provide them slaves to turn into werewolves just so they can be protected from the werewolves, even if it's not working out as well as they'd like it to. I, I think that there's something interesting there. Yeah, that's the that's the slave triangle that they've put into. There's an economy. Yeah. That they've established here. And and there's something about that, that that in the space of Underworldia, that's pretty cool. That's a cool thing that they're that they've set up, even if it does end up raising more questions for me that, OK, so yes. humans are at this point aware of werewolves and vampires. They have this uh, kind of uneasy truce with the vampires to help kind of keep the werewolves down. But by the time, you know, it's present day humans no longer are aware of any of this and so i yeah i'm just like okay i don't like what happened in the interim uh you know i i don't know and i suppose that's something that happens a lot in these older sorts of stories where now in present day oh they just had these tales that they would tell of these creatures and stuff like that and it just seems like old wives tales or you know fanciful tales they'd tell their children so i can see where that is i just i it's just it i don't know i guess i wanted a little more out of that but i still like that yeah. it's a part of this world yeah i do too and you know i we don't get a sense of um other covens at this point None. right like like that's this is just um you know we we live in the mines of moria in a castle carved out of the stone walls underground i would i would uh, say it's helm's deep <laughs> it's helm's deep helm's right deep exactly with fangorn right outside right <laughs> 
That's right. I I do like what they what they've done here with the uh, with the production design and demonstrating. That's one thing that they made good on, which is demonstrating Certainly. where in the hell do they live. Uh, and I, I think they did a, a solid job of of uh, you know demonstrating how vampires could do this. I don't understand how there are ball gowns and. Like the <laughs> some of the character design is just daffy to me. Like they've set up this the period where everybody's wearing strappy leather and muddy boots, and you go in and they're in like you know sparkly, bangly dresses and silks and things. And I had I don't I just didn't I didn't buy it. Nothing was as strange as the fact that the humans when they're transporting their slaves wrap each of them in like canvas outfits. Like, yeah, what was that nonsense? Like, <laughs> who transports people marching through these forests wrapped in canvas outfits where they can't <laughs> see anything? It's like, that's the most <laughs> nonsensical thing I've ever seen. It looks great. And I think that's my biggest problem with the film is the filmmakers, and this is definitely true, especially, I mean, Len Wiseman, we know he came from that art background and Patrick Tatopoulos, who's directing this one, was the creature designer on the first two and the production designer on the last one. These are people who enjoy looks and the image and what were being conveyed through the visuals. That is very clear because the visuals look great. When you have a slave caravan where all the slaves are wrapped up in these strange canvas outfits, it creates a really kind of creepy, strange world where this is the sort of thing that happens. But then you have to start thinking about the logic behind it. And that's where it just really becomes problematic. Yeah, I think so. However, speaking of things that look cool, uh what's your take on the evolution now three years later of the visual effects i thought they were great i mean in a film that is all about the war i thought that they did a great job with the werewolves the lichens i thought the vampires i mean they you know largely they're not doing much with the vampires other than giving them pointy teeth and and pallid makeup but i think that they were fine I think that the wars, the different things that the people are doing, I thought all of that was great. If there was anything that I was missing, it was the fact that we don't get to see any of the vampires have a Marcus type of moment where they turn into like a bat creature or something. Yeah, we didn't have any of those sort of hero moments. Uh, And again, I don't think you could say we had any sort of hero moment, the likes of which Celine shooting through the floor in the first movie, um, those sorts of of principal things, the Mythbusters moments. I don't feel like we have any of those. I think there's one maybe slow-mo action scene of Sonya as she's doing like a jump through the air or something. Yes, there is. It's an up. It's one of the it's like that kick up over upside down and we have a couple of those and i would say there are some really cool wire scenes we've talked about how much we love the jumping off of the building that celine does and we have that now with bill nye and his troops they jump off the side of a thing and they do that same kind of like it's such a gentle landing because they change their mass because they're underworld vampires and they're very light (laughs) now and they hit the ground and they just go and start walking and it looks really cool i think that their sort of choices around how they handle wire work and gravity in this movie are really are really pretty great i I also didn't have any problem with the attack on the fortress at the end and that's that's often sort of where it goes sideways any of the long passages across the field where you have the lichens running, like galloping, and uh, and they're shooting those giant like telephone pole size arrows 
at the <laughs> at them in the field. Um, like I, I actually thought that was very cool. I think it looked great. I think they've made that transition to uh, CG wolves in motion uh, look look pretty good. There's only one sequence at the beginning of the movie where we're doing the trench run, uh, where. Uh, one of them runs ahead and is sliding down a cliff wall, and that looks just straight up cartoonish. But but overall, I think the movie achieves what it sets out to achieve, and and you know makes some believable vampires or werewolves. Yeah, right, right. And you know, they again part of the lore that they created here is that the lichens have this whole underground network that they've been digging and i actually really liked that when we get to that when they're running through the forest and they start falling into these tunnels i'm like okay that's actually a unique part of this world that i do buy into and i find really interesting yeah uh rona mitra is as our our principal uh character i also thought was exceptional casting Right. Because they have set up this expectation that Celine is a replacement of Sonia, Victor's uh, blood daughter. And uh, and so we know Celine, we know what she looks like and how she acts and moves. And now we meet the, the person who was supposedly her model. And I I bought that entirely. I thought she did a great job. I thought she was fine. I haven't seen her in much i thought she actually i to that point the fact that she's kind of the celine look-alike i was like okay that i totally buy the fact that that victor would see young celine and say oh she reminds me of my daughter i'm going to keep this one alive uh, and just turn her i buy that and uh in context of that i thought rona mitra worked well in the part i thought she fit well in the juliet side of this uh tragic love story yeah, I, yeah, right. I mean, and that's all. I, that's all we need to really expect of her, right? I yeah, mean, it's, right, it's, yeah really. she's she did exactly what she needed to do. We do have uh, another weird cliffside sex scene. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I guess it's one of those things where it's like uh, it's it's you know, it's but it, it fits in the context of this Romeo and Juliet type of world story that we're because where here. are you going to do it? Right, right. right I mean, at the top in of this cliff, universe. Right? Where are you going to do well, it? Well, it's like, is that her bedroom? Like, it, it seems like a, an odd little... <laughs> this like, little outcropping? Well, it's like, the, the... It, it really felt, it, it felt very much like Victor was like locking his daughter in the tower. Like, I'm going to keep you up there away from everybody. <laughs> oh, but there happens to be this, <laughs> this random <laughs> vent system that connects to it. I don't know what it was. It, it was fine, but it did make me wonder, okay, so... I know Victor doesn't like the lichen and is using Lucian largely as a slave, largely as kind of the one who will do what he says and kind of make sure these other lichens also do what what he says. And to that end, I get it. It's you don't want your daughter to fall in love with the slave help. But I, I was he was he nervous about the idea of half breeds? Did that ever come up, or was it just the fact that it was a lichen that he was just disgusted by? I can't I remember this because is, this is more baggage, right? Yeah. Like it's we know he's already so concerned about half breeds, but my hunch was that the intention here was that he was not concerned yet about half breeds, and that it was this experience that made him concerned about half-breeds mm. later. Gotcha. Right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. 
I yeah. mean, he's a he's a, a, a lichenist, a racist old man. <laughs> and, you know, he's also somebody who has a lot of just seemingly questionable policies. The way that he determines, like what's like when he's going to whip. Lucian and things like that. I'm like, really? Yeah. This uh, like there were certain things that would happen throughout. I'm like, this seems like if he were the leader and I were one of his, I don't know, disciples. I don't know what you call them. It just seems like, hmm, I, I'd be questioning some of these decisions that he was making. Well, on the production design, you mentioned the whipping. Production design on the whipping. That whip is serious. Oh yeah, with all those little silver uh, blades at the end of it. Yeah. 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 yeah, that I'm surprised that didn't cleave more bone. Right? Yeah, it's just like that's not that horrible, would not have been my expectation. Thing. Well, I guess if you're yeah. a lichen, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you take it. <laughs> but honestly, that made the whipping scene work better in the first film. Even though that vampire was not whipping a whip that I could tell with the blades on it, yeah. I was like, okay, well, maybe they have evolved their whips so at least they're silver tipped, and that's why it affects the lichen so much. Uh, so I was like, okay, maybe maybe I can buy into that now more because of this. Yeah, right, right. I still, I just, I have to complain though. This oh, is good. seriously bugging me. Why do we not have any female lichens? What is up with this? I mean, is there is there is that part of their logic that they have created this rule where females don't turn into lichens, they just die or something? Like, I don't know. Like, why don't we have women lichen running around? Do they not want to make them more animalistic because these male storytellers need to have all their, van all their supernatural creatures look hot and sexy all the time? I don't get it. I, I don't understand the logic for not having any female lichens. No, I think you just I think you just said it. Right. I mean, yeah, I think making is, yeah, making a female lichen is antithetical to uh which breed exudes sexuality. Yeah. And we only get that through the vampires. And it's the the men and the women vampires. They're all hot, even Bill Nye in his very special way. <laughs> uh and so I, I think that's a that is a really important aesthetic to this film. Uh, that this they have franchise. elevated yeah. to this franchise that they have elevated for, uh, you know, for us is that vampires are hot and lichens are the the brutes and yeah. we don't need to worry about the hot. Although Michael Sheen, he's got something special, <laughs> real, real special. There is indeed. Yeah. indeed. So, uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's it's crazy because clearly, I mean, I guess they eat all the women. <laughs> That's the problem. The hell? Like, uh, <laughs> I, I, I just find it to be just a very infuriating role. And I wish that there was something that made sense there. Even and I was thinking about this, even in the previous film, when we see the flashback to 1202 and all the dead bodies start rising up. I was like, were any of those women? If so, they never really made it clear. They just, we just see kind of their kind of crazy, shaky transformation. And then all right. of a sudden it's a wolf creature. And I, I guess I just never was able to catch if any happened to be women or not. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I do like uh, one of the, the mechanics here that they unveil for us is the transformation of all the prisoners, particularly uh, guys like Ray's. Mm. I like that mechanic that the vampires are converting them into slaves uh, and converting those slaves into werewolves uh, by having yeah. them intentionally bit. We needed that. And I thought that was a nice little surprise uh, in this movie. 
It was. It was it was nice to see and and kind of having that whole thing where they're they've established this, you know, place to meet out front and you just get kind of get this group of wolves and transforming and then going to war. It yeah. works. I mean, and those are things that kind of work. You get this whole idea of this, we're gonna build this army. We've been abused, and now we're going to go attack. I thought that was great. I'd like to say another example of Victor's poor leadership. He clearly has no sense of how to keep his <laughs> castle pinned down and safe because these they all get in very easily. Like, they're very all easily. inside. They've all secreted themselves away. They're all in yeah. the in the castle before uh, they're um, caught trying to break out. It just is like, oh, boy. What is going on with this story? So yeah. there, there were things that worked in context of the story. It just, I couldn't help but be frustrated really throughout because of the sloppy construction of this world that we have from our uh, storytellers here. One of the notes I wrote is separate lines of elves is confusing. And I don't remember what I was talking about. Do you remember elves in this movie or did I autocorrect myself to death? I... You must have autocorrected yourself. I, I don't know what you meant. Vampires? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. But maybe it's because this film feels like they were trying to steal a lot from the Lord of the Rings films as far as <laughs> the look of this particular land that we're in with the Helm's Deep and the Fangorn and everything. And you probably just typed elves because you were thinking about Because I was thinking about Tolkien's. Well, I do think, and I think you already mentioned it, I may it may have been wolves, separate lines of wolves is confusing. Mm, yeah. But I think we've already addressed that, which is the whole idea of having wolves that can't transform and the wolves that do transform in the woods together. Yeah. And trying to to like was it important for me to be able to discern who's who in the final battle? I don't think it was. I think they just throw them all in together. The ones I that I needed do. to know would transform first. Yeah, and they would also not look as wolfy. I think that's something that they've established is the the line of wolves from William that don't ever transform. They look a lot more wolf-like, whereas the wolves that can transform back and forth have a little bit more of a humanish sort of Less look. Less of like a snout. Yeah, their snouts aren't as long. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. Um, you want to talk about getting it made? Well, just I just have a little bit. I mean, we talked about this last time where they kind of had this trilogy in mind from the beginning. And after the success of Underworld, they uh, were moving forward with both of them. And they knew the third one would be a prequel. I don't know how much they had sorted it out. But Len Wiseman says in June 2006, so a little bit after the release of the second one, he said, the third, third film is going to be a prequel. It will be the origin story, and we find out things we didn't know about Lucian. He'll have a much bigger part in it. It will be about the creation of the races and what started the war. It will be a period piece. The movie will also focus for the first time through the Lycan's point of view. In terms of the writing, a lot of the writing has been done. We've been developing Underworld 3 for a while. I won't be directing it. I'm just going to be producing and writing. So they had a lot of this in mind already. And he said a lot of, of writing had been done. We've been developing it for a while. And again, I ask, with all of that, why does it feel so sloppy? Yes, 100%. Like, if they've been thinking about it so hard, why do we end up with what we have? And I think I, 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 this is the existential challenge that I have with this movie, and I'm I'm curious your thoughts. If they really had a trilogy in mind for this film, why did they end the trilogy on a prequel. Right. What's it doing to kind of conclude the overall story? Yeah. How do you end a story at the beginning? 
I don't think they successfully did that. I don't think they had a plan for that. And I think uh, I think they probably deep down thought, hey, you know what? We'll probably get some more money out of this and do another movie. Probably. But but having a plan, I don't understand how you begin to conceive of this movie as the end, the potential end to a franchise. It does not function that way. It's very strange. Very, very strange. You know, I I. Sometimes I wonder as I look at these, is it because of the the number of people they have crafting these stories? We know that it was the the three people that we talked about at the beginning, Kevin Grevio, Len Wiseman, and Danny McBride, who created the characters, created this world, wrote the script for that first movie, and then they've all kind of been continuing, but largely just these stories have largely just been based on the characters. Len Wiseman worked on the story with Robert Orr and Danny McBride. But then Danny McBride wrote the script, and then Dirk Blackman and Howard McCain also, like that writing pair, came on to work on it as well. And they're one of those writing pairs that, I mean, they haven't done a lot of stuff. I think largely they only worked together on Outlander, the uh, the Jim Caviezel film, kind of the sci-fi. I don't remember if you remember that film. It came out right before this. Yeah where he he's like an alien and he and an alien that he's fighting they land during viking viking times and battle it out um that and this film are the two films that they worked on together and then dirk blackman went on to do things like deep blue c3 and uh, i i don't feel like they were a great pair to bring on i mean it seems like maybe they're kind of that low end genre writer that Hollywood would bring on to projects like this. But it's, yeah, again, I just don't feel like they're the people to jump in and really craft this story and, and give it what it needs. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, and I should say, like my, it feels like we're really, you know, chipping away at this movie. But um, for me, ultimately, I, I think what is on, what they put on screen is cool. Right. I, the verdict for me is it's cool. And so I forgive. I forgive a lot. The problem is this movie gives me so much to forgive. Yeah. Um, I, I think Tatopoulos has a, a, a lot of great source material to work with. And obviously he created the creatures. He has not a deep understanding of the of the look and the, of the universe and the feel and the tone of the universe. And uh, I think he he largely delivers on that. I think I think you're right. The problem is the sloppiness of the script and um, and the fact that the people who wrote the movie uh, also felt like if we just put cool stuff on screen, no one will pay attention to what we write. And those are the wrong people to have that opinion. And same thing with the director. I, I think that, I mean, this is the only thing he's directed. He's largely an effects guy. Like, that's what yeah. he does is right. is creature effects and special effects makeup and that whole world of things. And I think in that sense, I think he does a a good job in that and, and production design also. Like he's very much into the visual look of things. When it comes time to actually tell a story, I just don't think he he has the has what it takes. It's clear in the editing. I think the editing is rushed. It constantly feels like he's 
you know, he feels the need to cut to things quick and we don't get a good sense of things because there's just so much over editing throughout this film. The look is great though. I love the look of this film. I love the concept of this and the idea of this big war between the two. I think that there's a lot there. I just really get frustrated so much because the story bogs the whole thing down so much. Yeah. Yeah. It just feels like they, uh, yeah, it feels like they ran out of steam uh, creatively and didn't know what to do after the the last movie and yeah. just decided okay change in time and the reason i i'm feeling more confident in that than ever is the transition from here to the next movie is dramatic hmm. right what they do to bring us back into the the sort of present day underworldia is a dramatic change in the universe and i think that it, it, it's possible that the filmmakers needed this movie to reset and just kind of where they are in the world. And um, so I'm going to, I, you know, I'm, I'll, uh, it's, it's not, it's not great. It looks cool. A lot of baggage, but I think the performances for a soap vampire werewolf soap opera were largely really good. I enjoyed Michael Sheen. Uh, I didn't have a problem with Michael or with Bill Nye uh, and his accent. Rona Mitra, mwah, chef's kiss. I think she was great stepping into the to the lead uh, uh, female role. Um, I, I didn't have a problem with anybody that I was looking at on screen. They all brought what they needed to bring to make it look cool. No, I thought the cast, you know, they all did what they needed to do. Yeah. You know, I wasn't I, I wasn't as blown away by any of them as you are, I think, but they, they all did fine. They all did fine in their parts. It's just I think they probably could have all done a lot more if they had been given if they had a better, better material. to work with. Yeah. Yep. Ross Emery behind the camera. Largely a second unit uh cinematographer. Yeah. He comes in for a lot of films and does that. But, uh, in fact, he's doing right now, or they just finished up, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Curious about that That'll one. will be interesting. Yeah. yeah, it will be interesting. That's a, this lot is, of, a lot of money behind the production on that. Indeed, indeed. This is yeah. his only step into this world, into the underworld uh, films. But largely the types of films that he has been cinematographer on are kind of these uh, smaller sorts of creature features. Until the kind of toward the later end of his uh, cinematography credits, the giver woman in gold, the art of racing in the rain. So he's, he certainly yeah. has made a little bit of a switch there. Dan Henna, Deb Watson, Jane Holland behind production design, hair and makeup and costumes. Uh, mixed bag for me. I think this is, this is a, uh, it's a really frustrating because it's, it's another distracting element from the universe where they, they were led to make choices around, design elements that stand out so obtusely that it takes me out of the film and um, you know i've already mentioned the ball gowns and sequins uh, it's just it's it just doesn't make sense and i i hate it when those rules get get sort of broken well it yeah i mean it feels like they were trying to create a uh, a period piece. They were trying to create this more gothic period sort of look, but it does make you question so many things when the vampires are living in kind of this <laughs> this keep that's that's built into the mountain, as opposed to like a royal palace or something. So it does yeah. seem it does seem it's a little a, strange. It's a, 
they, they threw a little bit too much Great Gatsby into it, right? I mean, yeah. there is a little bit of this flapper-inspired design for the for the the vampires for the women, in particular, and it just is broken. It's just well, broken. If you're thinking about the fact that this is obviously before twelve o two, like yeah, this should be like Middle Ages sort of outfits, like much, yes. Uh, Unless what they're suggesting is that it's the vampires who actually drive cultural adaptation of fashion. Right. And that, in fact, they're just incredible early adopters. Yeah. Who do you think does all their washing? I mean, do the werewolf slaves do that? (laughs) I would think that everything would be slashed to pieces. One of the things that we haven't talked about is just how what terrible eaters they are. Like they we, they suck the blood and they do all the blood memory stuff. They're constantly biting each other, and when they come up, there's blood all over their face. Why aren't their clothes and all over the other person's in neck? Blood, like, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, I don't buy it. We need more washing of the werewolf or the vampire's fine vestments. More of that would would give us. And I'd we'll love to see a vampire a movie that actually picture. made the vampires very fine, like nitpicky eaters, like very yes. <laughs> meticulous about, yeah. you know, is the is the bite wound is it just right or did they tear it too much? Is it yes. is there too much blood spurting? Too much. Yeah, we just don't get that. I mean, you know, for once, for once, would they miss the vein? Like just <laughs> oh, I got to do it again. I'm going to take the other side. All right, yeah, I'm just right. going to try it again. Paul Haslinger is back on the music and he is, uh, I, you know, I, again, I, I like the score. It was fine uh, on this one. It was, I, I like the last one better. Yeah. I mean, he's, he does fine with the world. I don't think it's yeah. too problematic. You've already talked about the quick editing from Peter Edmund, Am, ah, Peter Amundsen and Eric Potter. Yeah. I just, I, I don't know if I should fault them or the director, but I just felt, boy, was this over edited. It just, it really felt like they were, rushed trying to put this together or just rushed thinking about how it needed to get put together yeah well i mean you know they could have been paid by the cut (laughs) right um sequels and remakes so kevin grevio uh we know who's one of the original creators of this uh franchise i i haven't looked at this but he did create a two-issue miniseries for idw publishing so if this is something that struck your fancy it might be worth checking that out to see if it's still out there and, and you can get a little bit more of rise of the lichens through a comic book adaptation less people think we forget this segment i was tempted to blow right by it but andy <laughs> awards <laughs> yes uh, of course right yeah you'd think even a film like this would garner uh you know a uh, something from the Razzies or any of these others, you know, the, what do we have last week? The, the chainsaw awards, you know, yeah. is it, is it, does it fit in anywhere? Apparently not. This film just didn't work uh, for people. And by the time all the awards came around, it had been completely forgotten. So bupkis, not even a single nomination of any kind for this one. All right. But did it earn any money, Andy? How'd it do at the box office? New to the director's chair, Satopoulos got a budget of $35 million, or $41.6 million in today's dollars to work with. Not as much as the second film, but more than the first. The film opened January 23rd, 2009, opposite the family film Inkheart. But neither film could bump America's number one film at the time, Paul Blart Mall Cop. That's right, Pete. Paul Blart <laughs> Mall Cop. Number one film wow. in America. 
There you go. This one did come in number two. It ended up earning 45.8 million domestically and 46.3 million internationally for a total gross of 109.6 million in today's dollars. That leaves Satopolis's film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 731,000 and enough momentum to keep moving forward. Wow. Paul Blart. Paul Blart Mall Cop. When are we doing that franchise, Pete? And to think, we've never done it on the show. Yeah, oh, I don't even know what to say about coming. that. <laughs> Just you wait. Uh, all right. Well, uh, overall, I think it was, the, the movie was, it. it's, I'm going to say it probably served its purpose. Uh, let's just see how it it transitions into the, the latter half of its series. There's stuff that looks cool, a lot of baffling choices, largely uninspired, and maybe a little boring. Uh, Rise of the Lycans. What do you think? Should we take it to the mat? Let's do it. At flickchart.com slash the next reel, you'll see our list of movies that we've ranked on this entire series. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, it'll take you directly to this film where you can add it to your catalog and see how it stands up against ours. All right. First up, Underworld Rise of the Lycans versus Il Postino, The Postman. Il Postino, please. Il Postino, The Postman. Underworld Rise of the Lycans or Foul Play? Um, I'll take me some Foul Play, please. Foul Play, yeah. Underworld Rise of the Lycans or Giant? Oh, this is this is a tricky one because you could actually watch Underworld Rise of the Lycans twice or watch <laughs> it once and then go outside and get some fresh air. I'll pay, take Giant. Really? It's not, it's not a bad film. I think that it's actually a more interesting story with more interesting characters. It's just long, and um, James Dean's age makeup doesn't work that well. But I, I would take it for sure. All right, all right. I'll give you that. That's a good point. Underworld Rise of the Lycans are Friday after next Christmas time with Ice Cube. Uh, Friday after next. Friday after next for me, too. Underworld Rise of the Lycans or The Edge. <laughs> the Edge. <laughs> I will take the edge. Underworld Rise of the Lycans or Rush. Not the Ron Howard Rush. Underworld Rise this of the Lycans. This is the other Rush. I will take Rush being <laughs> Andy, what are you doing? I'm, not, I'm taking Rush. That's what I'm doing. We're, uh, on principle, we have to go to the mat. Uh, yes, we do. All right, here we All go. Right. One. One. Two. Two. Three. Three. Rock. Rock. Paper. Rock. Okay. Rush takes it. I can't. I can't Underworld Rise that. of the Lycans or Ocean's Eleven, 1960 Frank Sinatra vehicle. Underworld Rise of the Lycans. I will take Underworld Rise of the Lycans here. But Rush, Andy, you are yes, broken indeed. today. What's going on? Are you okay? <laughs> did, you have a, did you throw a clot? Underworld Rise of the Lycans or the women? Underworld Rise of the Lycans. I will take Underworld Rise of the Lycans. Uh, oh, Pete, this one's for you. Underworld Rise of the Lycans or Under the Cherry Moon. Under the Cherry Moon. <laughs> I will take Always Underworld and forever. Rise of the Lycans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. Here we go. One, One two, two, three. three paper, paper. Scissors. Paper. Paper. <laughs> scissors. paper. Oh, God. <laughs> 
Oh, Underworld Rise of the Lycans takes it. Uh, it's about 475, wedged between the classics Rush and Under the Cherry Moon. I'm telling there you, man. There it is. 475. It's going to come up with like Under the Cherry Moon versus, I don't know, uh, something amazing. Tentacles. Tentacles. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. I don't know. Something is going to come up there. And we've never even done that on this show. I know. It's going to it's going to hit. It's going to blow up our list. I cannot wait. Cannot wait. Well, Underworld Rise of the Lycans ended up in spot 475 out of 481. That is a 1%. 1%. Pretty low. Did you did you beat 1% on your personal ranking? Um, I did. I made it all the way up to 7% on my Seven. personal chart. 4,199 out of 4515. Oh. Very low. All right. Very disappointing. So, Sloppy. Disappointing. So is that a half star for you? Is that where you... I, what does the algorithm tell you at 7%? The algorithm says I should do a half star. Okay. Well, I'm a little bit more gracious than you are. I've got 1188 uh, out of 1477, which is a 20%. Uh, that should be a... Uh, one star, um, according to the algorithm. So I can take that over to letterbox.com slash the next reel and leave it at one star. I'm, I, I may even give it a one and a half. Um, but I, oh, boy, the heart is a tricky one. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> well, no heart for me. I'm at one star, no heart. <sighs> like this is, it's just, it was a really rough one. And I feel like, they broke too many of their own rules and they I feel like they just yeah, they don't have yeah. a concept of the universe they're creating as as entertaining as it can be just straight up if you just watch it by itself all right then I'm gonna give it no heart but I am gonna give it one and a half star okay so that's one and a quarter is where it ends up landing when we do it ranked so that uh, there it is one and a half uh, for you one for me. That's yeah. Underworld Rise of the Lycans. Oof. Uh, okay. Well, so that one's done. T- tell me, Andy, where do we go from here? We're going to be jumping again three more years to 2012. We're going to be looking at Underworld Awakening. This one has yeah. the return of Selene. I have not seen this one either, so I'm curious to jump back into the world present day and see where things are going now. Well, things are not going well, Andy. Oh. Let me just tell you that. Okay. Uh, well, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always do it. All right. So I didn't go to Amazon again. I just love, I'm really loving what the kids have to say about this movie over at Common Sense Media. And I, <laughs> even though I think you've clearly pointed out every time, oh, likely you have yet to read something that a kid I, has actually read. And that's why, Andy, today I'd like to bring you a survey of some brief reviews for this movie. If you, if you don't mind, oh. I'm going to change it up a little bit and just, just read you a selection of short reviews. Uh, I am and see what you I'm think. thrilled, looking forward to it. Mostly, I think it's safe to say that the kids think, again, Common Sense Media is incorrect in their rating that this is 18 plus rated R. Um, okay. That, that they really should not have said. The parents say that this movie should be rated uh, for 13 and uh, up. Wow. And that 
uh, it should be a four-star movie. And kids say it should be rated for 12 uh, and up, and it should also be a four-star movie. Um, this is a good I film. I thought you just said the kids said it should be 18 and up. No, Common Sense Media says 18 oh, and up, two sense. stars. Oh, sorry, I missed. Okay, yeah. right, gotcha. Right, 18 and up, two stars, uh, based on their expert review. All right. Uh, I've got a 17-year-old who says, good film, close call between this one and Evolution. Dark, gory, violent, good film. Underworld fans, please go see it now. Very gory, a 12-year-old. I love this movie, but it has loads of gore. If your child is grossed out by 300, please don't watch it. Here's a 13-year-old who says enthusiastically with five stars, and uh, you'll know the uh, certainly the caps lock was on if you don't change your rating i'm leaving csm for good this is the most biased review csm has ever wrote i mean wtf not for kids question marks a thousand <laughs> are you people crazy it deserves at least off for 16 or 17 wonder why it's rated r Okay, so that was that was enthusiastic. Uh, uh, common do you sense. To, is, do you want me to judge now or wait till we're no, done? No, wait. Because I'll tell you right now. Okay, there's, there's more. Uh, common sense. You are crazy. This movie deserves like a 15 plus. Not no kids. Scream is way worse than this, and it's 16 plus. Common sense. You have to change your reading. My rating. My 10 year old brother watches it. Not appropriate. So good. Great movie and so appropriate. That's there. They say it's so appropriate. Uh, e- this is a five star, e.g., perfect for Dora loving children. I love it. Please show it to your toddler. That's uh, from a fifteen year old. And uh, uh, the one that I'm going to end on is is uh, it written by a sixteen year old? Says that this movie should be given to nine year olds and up. Five stars. My, this movie is great. It has a story that leads into a very strong issue that should be investigated by kids. Unless you are into slavery, then fine, don't let your kids watch it. It starts from love and full circles to murder, but you know, it's kind of hard not to when it's a story that particularly revolves around prejudice, discrimination, and slavery. I this, if a kid can understand these concepts, then they'll be okay to watch it. Wow. Unless you're into <laughs> then fine. <laughs> Don't let your kids watch it. What do you got? Amazon come up uh, with anything as good as those kids? Oh, you know, I have one person who uh, I just, I have to read. And, you know, I rated this pretty low. So, of course, I'm going high. And I am sitting at five stars with uh, this person, uh, Thomas Delamorte, who... I think I'm a little concerned about Thomas's history understanding of the real world because Thomas's five star review said a cool documentary. <laughs> oh dear, Thomas. Oh Thomas, dear. Thomas, Thomas. Uh, this was not a history class movie. This not, sorry, this Thomas. Ah, oh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.